This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by The Alcohol Experiment, a free 30-day challenge designed to interrupt your patterns, give you control, restore your health, and put you back in touch with the version of you who doesn't need alcohol to cope, relax, or enjoy life. More than 220,000 people have already tried The Alcohol Experiment for themselves and have seen improved sleep, increased happiness, reduced anxiety, and so much more. Join thousands in this inspiring, hopeful, and exciting program where you examine your beliefs and reconnect with the best version of you without ever feeling like you're missing out. Start today for free at alcoholexperiment.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. And I am here today with one of my friends and an author I really admire, Catherine Gray. Welcome. Oh, hi. Thank you for having me. I'm oh. honored. Um, as you know, I'm a big fan of yours. Um, so I'm just delighted to be talking to you again. That's so great. So uh, we talked once before and really shared your story. And I know we want to talk about your new book, which I have right here, Sunshine Warm Sober Today, because this idea of unexpected sober joy that lasts is just so cool. And it's been my experience as well. And and I really want to sort of dig into what that can look like for people. But before we do that, for people who might not know you yet, would you mind sort of going back to the beginning and your journey with alcohol and giving us a bit of your story? Yeah, sure. So I quit drinking ultimately when I was 33. Uh, but before that, so that was eight years ago now, because I'm 41. But before that, I had many failed attempts where I tried to stop and started again and tried to stop and started again. Um, because I think I still had this idea in my head that I was going to be able to achieve moderation. And I think so many of us spend years chasing moderation and so few of us um, achieve it. And, and also it's, it's something that your book, actually, The Naked Mind, helped dispel for me because we awesome. are raised to be drinkers and we're raised and conditioned to believe that the square root of all fun is alcohol. And so I just, yeah, it took me a long while to let go of the alcohol, but it's been the best decision of my life. Um, It's sprung everything that I now hold dear and I wouldn't change it for the world. That's so awesome. And I remember um, when we were talking last, you you know, it's been, it's been a, let's focus on the journey. And especially I love how your book is laid out in like, time frames so can you tell us a bit about like the first maybe even the first few days the first month alcohol free and how that went into how time compounded joy I guess which is I think the main thing I get from your writing yeah I think um the first week alcohol free is was probably the roughest week of my life because I was physically addicted to it. And so I went through withdrawal, but I didn't need a medical uh, withdrawal. Um, I was sort of somewhere in between the two. And I just couldn't sleep. I had this roiling stomach. I had nausea that spiked so hard. Um, But then in week two and three, I started feeling this this peace and you know getting the sleep that we all talk about the uninterrupted uninterrupted eight hour sleep 
which is just something that you do not get when you're drinking because the alcohol wakes you up in the middle of the night when it leaves your system and just started feeling really proud of myself and then it was really in I noticed a change at 60 days it started to really click and become habit and second nature and I started to and were you tracking days at that point in time were you like kind of saying okay this is you know getting and were you sure this time around that yeah I was yeah and I think I think it took a lot of going back to be sure funnily enough I was talking to one of my good friends about this earlier today because I've got a couple of good friends that were off alcohol for many years and then went back because they weren't fully convinced and now they've come back to being alcohol free but they had that iota of you know curiosity in their minds where they were like maybe this time it'll be different and even though they'd achieved four or five years alcohol free it was still there in their heads and they went back and then were fully fully convinced but I I mean I didn't know at the time that that was going to be the day one that stuck but I'd gone back in our times I'd had enough convincers <laughs> to really give it my full throttle and I think that's what was the difference for me was I threw all of my energy into not drinking and that was the game changer for me and so what did that look like on a day-to-day when you say all of your energy into not drinking like what did that look like for you on a day-to-day basis well I was working at the time but from home so I was able to read an awful lot of books like your book and um, I, I read voraciously and even you know academic journals on the neuroscience of the brain and you know you're as much of a geek as me if not a bigger geek um, <laughs> when it comes to neuroscience so I just developed this it was almost like studying for a degree that's how I would describe it I was obsessed with not drinking and listening to podcasts and journaling about it and meeting other people that were also sober um, and that don't know that fixation I guess laid down a really solid bed for me Um, and now I don't really have to do any work around it because I think the longer that you're alcohol free the less you have to do although I do think it's important to pick something up if you feel your thoughts sliding back that way so yeah I just I think it's all about the learning for me learning about addiction and yeah And I I think that that's one of the things that so often gets overlooked in traditional sort of behavior change or habit changes is that we really jump right into the behavior, right into the action. So, okay, we're just going to do that thing. Like we're just going to start. And really, I think why it's been so almost easy for you and I is because we spent so much time learning. And then I would say that learning changes our emotion. And when our emotion changes, then we don't actually want to do the thing anyway. And I mean, human beings at the end of the day, like we do what we want to do over the long term, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you're right. And once you understand, okay, the reason I'm feeling this urge to go back to this is purely because this neural pathway in my brain is just something that's been there for 20 odd years and I'm building a new one. And that takes time and effort, and it will take a while for that um, urge, that automatic pathway to fade. 
and just knowing that made it so much easier for me to not do it <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it and I, I think you're right you you really the more that you know about it the less allure it has um, and I think also when you learn about all the corruption in, at the heart of big alcohol as well which is something I'm really passionate about and I talk a lot about in the book um, it makes you a bit angry and that anger can be used as fuel as energy to get you away from the alcohol Oh, I love that. So yeah, tell us some of your, your hot tips in that regard. Oh, what, in terms of um, the, big alcohol? Yes. Oh, well, I mean, there's, there's lots of things that I've learned. I mean, I don't know what it's like in the US or Canada, but here in the UK, if you pick up a bottle of alcohol, it says on the side of it, go to drink aware for the facts. And I was like, oh, drink aware is so nice, providing everyone with the facts. And then I found out after I wrote the last book, so I must have been, I was over four years sober when I found this out, um, that drink aware is funded by the alcohol industry. Mm. I mean, it really is. Um, and by their own admission. And yet we're being sent there for the facts, which is a bit like a soft drink company, you know, setting up sugar aware and sending you there for the facts about a can of soft drink. So it just doesn't make any sense to me. But once you find out those things, you see that you're being manipulated and you can cut the strings. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I, I feel like in the US, it's not go to drink aware, but it's on the bottles, drink responsibly, which is yes. one of the most shame loaded statements ever because it's, and I'm sure it's the alcohol <laughs> Like they lobbied to not have disclosures or disclaimers. And have spent a lot of money to make sure that they don't have to have any warnings, like the fact yeah. that in 1988, they determined that alcohol causes cancer. So almost everything else is labeled, right? Yeah. If it has a carcinogenic effect, but alcohol is not labeled. And that's because of, you know, deep pockets and, and the ability to, to lobby for regulation. And so the regulation that the alcohol industry lobbied for was that label of drink responsibly and mm -hmm. sort of saying, but of course, inherent is in that is it's not that the addictive substance is the problem. It's that you human being are the problem. If you cannot you're irresponsible. Yeah, you're irresponsible. And so it's almost like brainwashing just from the go. Right. It's, yeah, it's, it's completely absolving them on all responsibility. It would be like having a sign on a wet floor saying walk responsibly. Yeah, be careful. Or like, you know, being like, this, these are shark infested waters. We're going to not tell you that, but we're just going to say swim responsibly. Yeah. You get eaten and we didn't tell you. If we didn't tell you it caused cancer and you get cancer, if we didn't tell you it causes addiction and you get addicted, it's nothing, nothing to do with us. You know, one of the most frustrating things for me recently is that, um, uh, Facebook is really like, sometimes we will do like live events and we'll, we'll run Facebook ads. And Facebook is really crazy about shutting our ads down because they're like addiction related. And I'm sitting here thinking, but how much advertising money is spent on alcohol all the time? Like yeah. I can't, I can't advertise a solution. So yeah. it's just one of those things. It's like, man, it's crazy. And there's the, the, the um, tentacles of corruption go so high and so deep that we don't even know they're there. I mean, for instance, in our, in our country, 
Westminster is the booziest workplace pretty much in the land. <laughs> there's, there's loads of bars there. And I think they even have their own ale. And so there's, there's a really high proportion of MPs that also drink a lot. So it, it, it then means that if anything is brought to Parliament, say for instance, uh, you know, we should change alcohol labelling and put on health warnings like there are on cigarettes, which is long, long overdue, then it means that a lot of people are inclined to vote against it because it's, it's a very boozy place. So I think it's going to take a while for all of those things to shift, but it's, yeah, it's good to have your eyes wide open, even though it does make you a bit irate. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I say it all the time, but one of the things I think we owe to ourselves just as humans, like I'm not trying to change anybody's behavior necessarily. I just want to provide facts. I just want to provide information. And I think we owe it to ourselves as humans to be at least as informed about what we're putting in our bodies as we would be about, I mean, we're arguably more informed about like pesticides or more informed about the side effects of ibuprofen than we yeah. are about alcohol. I think that's so true. And I don't understand why they're able to get away with it still. It just seems crazy to me. But um, yeah, hopefully we're on the brink of some sort of change. Hope so have you seen culture changing in the UK? The culture has definitely changed in a social way, um, but it's yet to be seen in, you know, changing on labelling and things like that. But yeah, I, I really have seen a difference. I mean, I quit eight years ago, which I think is about the same as you. Um, and things were very different then. I mean, if you told people at a party that you didn't drink or you weren't drinking, you were subject to almost interrogation as to why that was um it was like the non-drinking inquisition and I had it so many times and now I haven't had it for years so much so that I went to a party um recently and a couple of people asked me you know because they knew that I was drinking the non-alcoholic punch it was obvious it was in my glass and they said oh you're not drinking how come and I'd literally just met them I just said hi my name's Catherine and they were like you're not drinking why and I was so shocked that I just laughed in their faces, both of them, because I hadn't had it for so many years. So that's a really good sign. That means things are shifting um, and non-drinkers are not interrogated in the same way that they were. And sobriety is actually seen in the UK as cool now, which is really great. But there's other changes that need to be made up top. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it was interesting. So um, Adele came out just a few days ago as having stopped drinking. And oh. yeah, so that's really exciting. And one of um, one of my uh, one of my team members posted in our kind of all hands chat, she said she's currently watching the Adele concert. She told her roommate that Adele quit drinking and she goes, oh, wow, I didn't know Adele had a problem. And just how crazy it is that that is still the first conclusion that a lot of people jump to. So while things are changing, I think there's so much of like, yeah, you can't stop unless you have a problem, which yeah. I think, you know, so many people are changing their relationship with alcohol without arguably having a problem these days. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's something that will just happen with time. And I mean, if you look at um, the generations, I'm sure it's the same there but the heaviest drinkers are baby boomers and then it gets less and less and less as you go down the generations. And in the UK, 18 to 24 year olds, only a third of them, uh, no, sorry, a third of them don't drink at all, not a drop. And this is like 
the, kid, the kids that are at university or young adults that are at university, they're not drinking. So I think, yeah, and I'm sure that that it's just going to take time for that to kind of rise up, that groundswell. Um, but it's, yeah, it's happening slowly but surely. So cool. <laughs> so, cool. Um, so let's talk about, you know, unexpected sober joy. Like, tell, tell me what that sort of means to you and in your life. Uh, well, the, I mean, the unexpected sober joy, that's based on the title of the first book, which was The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. And actually that title was my agent's idea. I wanted to call it, I wanted to rip off Marie Kondo and call it The Life-Changing Magic of Sobering Up. And uh, awesome. <laughs> she was like, no, don't, don't take her title and recycle it. Just do something of, of your own. So she came out with that. And it's just spot on. It just sums it up for me. And I'm sure for many, many people who quit drinking, because, you know, they, they don't necessarily think it's going to be the most amazing thing they've ever done. Um, they do it a lot of the time for health reasons or financial reasons or just because they hate hangovers. And then to find out that it's incredible. Nobody told me. Did anyone tell you? <laughs> uh, I wasn't told that. So um, it was 100% unexpected for me and the joys keep on coming as even in year five six seven eight so I yeah I'll never go back that's awesome that's so cool and inspiring and so what does that what does that look like really practically in your life oh what you mean to be eight years sober the joys keep on coming like oh yeah well I think they're more unexpected now um just things like I feel like a fully formed adult finally at 41 <laughs> I own my first place um I've got a dog I haven't killed him yet you know this, this is I'm learning to drive I mean I I'm, I'm literally about a decade behind my friends but I don't care and I'm loving all of this adulting um whereas when they were doing it I was still busy staying out till 4am doing karaoke and getting the night bus home with a kebab so it's just it's so luxurious to me to be an adult at long last oh I love that that's so cool and so tangible that's just awesome very cool so um in writing this book what what so obviously those things inspired you but what else was you know some of the key messages that you wanted to convey well I wanted to um dive into the stuff that I basically just didn't have room to talk about in the first book and also I think I thought when I wrote the first book probably a bit you might relate to this I was four years sober when I released that and I thought I've done most of my learning. <laughs> I'm not going to learn new things about alcohol. And then I learned loads of new things and had to do loads of work on myself to stay sober, even in, you know, years five, six, seven. So I think there's a tendency to think, oh, just because I've got through the first few years, I'm done. But there's, there's more yet to do, but not in a bad way. It's in an exciting way. So I wanted to touch on things like... Um, a lot of people think that the chart-topping predisposition to alcohol addiction is genetics, but it's not. It's actually having a tough childhood. Mm. And when you hear tough childhood, when you hear childhood trauma, you think very much of, you know, war-torn 
children who are, who are living in shanty towns and you know terrible circumstances but a lot of people are surprised to learn what a traumatic childhood is it's actually not as dramatic as you think and um, that makes you seven times more likely to go on to become addicted to alcohol so what are some of when you what is then a definition of a traumatic childhood it's things like um being humiliated by a mm. caregiver on a regular basis also something i was surprised by but actually i don't know why is it's having lived with a parent or adult who was addicted to something at the time it's obviously things that you would expect like being hit or sexually abused but then the other ones on this list it's um it's called the adverse childhood experiences questionnaire are more unexpected and if you get more than i think it's three then you qualify but and i think i got six and i didn't expect that that's great the adverse i mean it's not great that you got six but it's great it's great that there's a questionnaire so the adverse childhood experiences questionnaire and then yeah. when you saw that how did you personally sort of internalize that information well i went and had therapy <laughs> quite a lot of it six months you know more uh therapy to unravel it all because I think I'd had previous to that I think I'd told myself the story that a lot of us tell ourselves which is that you know it was it was tough at times but my childhood overall was all right it was good but that can that was confronting and so I decided to fully unravel it and I think that has been one of the things that's helped me the most in pushing me fully into adulthood and now I feel ready to be a parent you know whether it's just to a dog because I, I feel like now that I've figured out what went wrong in my childhood I can rectify that if I care for you know Arlo the dog or whatever may come my way that's so awesome. that's a that's a beautiful way to feel so I think this is such a great resource and everybody should definitely dig into it. But I do want to give a caveat is that so often when we start to look at our childhood through a different lens, we can embrace a lot of blame and that can be the primary human response. And when we do that, when we don't understand that, you know, our parents, just like we've been doing the best we can with the tools we have, uh, you know, and one of those tools has been alcohol. And so maybe we've been over drinking our parents were doing the best they could with the tools they have as well. And so I'm not advocating for like instant forgiveness as much as I'm saying that blame is a completely powerless situation. Um, when you blame someone else, when you learn all this stuff about your childhood and then you instantly go into the like any, any emotion of blame, you're literally telling your nervous system that there's nothing you can do to fix this, that it's somebody else's responsibility. And so one of the ways I think is really effective to actually go back and address childhood trauma and incidents is to ask yourself this very powerful question of in that moment, I remember that moment, whether it was that I was humiliated or hit or abandoned or whatever that moment was, what meaning did I create? And am I carrying with me to this day? Because the truth is in that moment, our brains created a meaning. Now there might've been a lot of evidence for that meaning, and it doesn't mean that everything is forgivable or you should be happy about what happened. But if you ask your brain, instead of why did they do that to me? How could they be that type of person? 
you have relieved yourself of blame and you put yourself back in a place of power. So by saying, what meaning did I create and how am I bringing that meaning into my life today? You have given yourself all the power back because guess what? We can change our meanings and you have just released yourself from that position of blame. So I always want to caution. I think things like this are great. And I think self-discovery is one of the best things we can do, but I always want to give kind of that preamble because I think that it is so often that we uncover or remember things and we just find ourselves stuck in a cycle of blame and feeling even more helpless or like a victim than we did before. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think I, so one of the reasons I capped the childhood therapy at six months-ish was because I didn't want to get caught in that cycle. I wanted to go back and deal with things that had to be dealt with because they were, um, they were bad and I'd never uncovered them and really looked at them. So they were kind of tucked away in the back of my head and unexamined. And I also read, have you read The Body Keeps the Score? That was so powerful for me because it just Amazing talks God. about how it holds those things in your body and um, a way of releasing it is just like going back in and not necessarily assigning, assigning blame, but just, yeah, just really letting that go once and for all and that was important to me I, I didn't want to go back over it time and time again and I won't go back to therapy for anything like that now but I also think that we repeat what we don't repair so if you don't go back and you know really heal some of that stuff then I think you can be prone to um acting out in ways that are not, you, are not necessarily the way you want to behave. So something that I found myself doing was cleaning when I felt like um, guilty about something. And so I had to go back and sort of find out why that was. And now I don't do that anymore. My house is a tip. <laughs> um, but it, it just uncovered lots of reasons for behaviors that I hadn't created a link between. You know, mm -hmm. that something that happened when I was four could be informing my behavior when I'm 41 just seems crazy, but it's true. Yeah. So, yeah, it, for me, it's more about, it's not about blame. It's about learning, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so cute. Hi, Arlo, you said. Hi, Arlo. Yeah. Um, but that's so important. And I love that you put it in a frame. You know, you're like, I'm going to do this for this amount of time, then I'm going to get on with things. But I, I agree with you. Yeah. I think that work is, is just so beautiful and so powerful. So Catherine, let me ask you sort of the question that I usually ask at the end of this, but I'm going to phrase it kind of differently. Uh, but if you could go back in time, to, you know, more than eight years ago now, and just talk to your former self about the joys you experienced now in your life, what would you say? Such a good question. If I could go back and tell the me that was just absolutely convinced that her life without alcohol was going to be drab and miserable and no fun and nobody was gonna fancy me or wanna be my friend or wanna hang out with me again, um, I just go back and say it's going to be quite the opposite. <laughs> um, it's going to be the start of everything that is good about your life. Um, and yeah, it's going to be tough and it's going to be anxiety inducing and confronting, but it's worth it. And anything that is enormously worthwhile is hard. 
That's just a fact. Um, that's what I'd say. I love that. And it is hard. I mean, and I love how um, Mark Manson, he's the author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Bleep. He talks about this fact that life is problems. And the sooner we can accept the fact that life is problems and that we get to choose which problems we want, the better. So, you know, you had a set of problems, which included having all your friends grow up when you were still going out at 4 a.m. And now you have a different set of problems, which might include somebody randomly asking you why you don't drink or, but which one do you actually want? And getting really clear on that. And again, it's all about giving ourselves power agency back so that we aren't the victim of circumstance because we are not as human beings, although there's a lot to convince us otherwise. So I just love that. Well, Catherine, I love your work. Um, and again, the sunshine warm sober, such a, such a good book. So, um, so honest. And so the same as well. I know we didn't even plan this so good. <laughs> it's amazing. So where can people find you? Um, mainly on Instagram. I'm not on Twitter as much. So I'm at unexpected joy of, um, yeah, mainly there really or in the books. Obviously. Okay, great. I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I've loved it. Are you ready for a deep dive and truly lasting change? If so, you might consider my intensive program. It's a nine week self-led program that you can do in the complete comfort of your own home. And it will truly transform your relationship with alcohol. If you want to learn more about this, go to thisnakedmind.com forward slash intensive. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.